Welcome to Living Goddess with Shamali God Arda. Listen in for goddess mythology, wisdom teachings, and intimate sharings from her daily practice and contemplations. Shamali illuminates the Shakti keys stitched into the fabric of our daily lives and inspires us to reclaim a pulsating intimacy with Source and revive our spiritual lineage rooted in the living goddess. Welcome to Living Goddess. I am your host, Shamli God Arda. Today I am speaking to you from Corfu, this green, luscious Greek island where we gather for our goddess summer ashram every summer. We have been doing this for 16 years now. Women coming from all over the world to explore an intimate and embodied connection with goddess. And there is a story I would like to tell you, a myth from the Greek mythology, which for me is such a powerful map for this path to understand why we talk about the path in the first place. Of course, our source connection is our birthright, it is our natural state. So when we speak about connecting or reconnecting or even disconnecting, these are just words that describe some processes that has happened in our consciousness that makes us experience ourselves as disconnected from her. But of course, we cannot ever be disconnected. It's just in our belief system that this seems true. So this story begins with Mother Gaia, Mother Earth, pulsating ball of beauty, luminous, abundant, an embodiment of motherly love. It is said that this love was the source of everything that we see on earth. She created her own body more and more luscious, And the more the oceans and the mountains and the trees started to live and vibrate, the more she felt an urge to create. And out of this love, she created her beloved Uranus, a dome around her, the sky, space, the heavens. And he wrapped himself around her and they merged together in total devotion to each other, total surrender to love. And this was the time when heaven and earth were one. 
And out of this lovemaking, Gaia became pregnant and gave birth to beautiful, luminous gods, creatures and beings that blessed the world. And Uranus was so proud of his beloved. He was so in love with the offspring as she birthed one beautiful being after the other. This is perfection, he thought to himself. This is a reflection of the beauty of our love. And this went on for a long time in such a harmony, such a bliss. Until Gaia, she became pregnant with something else. Something else was growing inside her. And the day came when it was time for her to give birth. And she birthed a baby with 50 heads and 300 arms. Overwhelmed with motherly love, she pulls the child to her breast. And he latches on, drinking from her life-giving milk. And the father, Uranus, comes to see the baby. The baby reaches towards his daddy. And this is the moment where things change. Because Uranus does not reach out for his child like he's done with all the others. Uranus is repulsed by this baby and as the baby reaches out for him his father rejects him. Uranus feels ashamed of this child. It doesn't fit into the idea of what he thinks his offspring should look like. He declares this child unfitted to belong to the family and Gaia is horrified For her, it doesn't matter what the child looks like. For her, pretty children, ugly children are all her children. But Uranus decides that this child needs to go. And in that rejection, there is a fragmentation happening in the totality of love. There is a a rift. And an opening in Gaia and an underworld is created. This is where Uranus throws the child, hides it away as if hiding it will make it go away. And as Gaia gives birth to more of these kinds of children, Uranus keeps hiding them away down into the underworld. And so he is creating monsters. Because nobody likes to be hidden down in the underworld. Nobody likes to be rejected and hated. Hatred, foster, hatred. So now we have an underworld full of these creatures that everyone on the surface fears and want to keep locked up 
for eternity. Gaia is heartbroken. For her, it doesn't matter what the children look like. She has the same love for all of her children. And her rage and her despair of, for what is happening is f overwhelming her. And she knows she has to stop Uranus. And she goes and she gets one of her sons. And Kronos, her son, comes with his dagger. And he cuts off the penis of Uranus. And another rift is created. This is the moment where heaven and earth are separated. Uranus, he escapes far, far up, up, up above away from the pain, away from the rage of the mother, away from the mass. He ascends up, 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 where he has been ever since. And it is said that this is the root story of the Western civilization. Because there is no secret which of the parents, Uranus or Gaia, who won the custody of human consciousness, we left with him far, far above into this abstract sense of self where we began to look down upon earth upon feelings, upon monsters in the underworld, upon our very own body as an object, as something other, something we can control and use for our own benefit. Our spirituality, our religions, became Uranus-centered, where we idolize this disembodied spirituality. Our freedom and peace and spiritual maturity is found away from the feminine, away from body, away from earth, away from the mass. We seek this transcended self. Of course, we live today in the consequences of this kind of consciousness. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with Uranus. He's the brilliant spaciousness of our own being. But uprooted from the mother, he creates havoc and a lot of harm. He created the modern lifestyle which we see today is it's, it's a kind of a slow suicide where we keep harming and abusing, taking from the mother who feeds us. So we can see this in the social, cultural, even global dynamics 
but in our practice we bring it all the way into our own consciousness when we come into the world you know we come in as one, as as unity you see a little baby there is no fragmentation there there is just energy freely flowing there's receptivity there is a union with self and surroundings and then of course as we begin to shape, be shaped into our family system into our society system we receive messages that there are parts of ourselves that do not fit in that are unwanted and we learn to push parts of ourselves down into the basement into the shadow and then we move into a brooded sense of selves and i say selves because there are many different parts that we call self and even in our spiritual path we can create a new spiritual self and no matter how glittery and and pretty it looks if it is uprooted if it's dependent upon keeping other parts of ourselves obey down into the basement if it's depended on controlling and objectify the body and earth it will it's intrinsically painful what the buddhists call the root disease is this sense of separation and the sense of separation can result in pretty identities as well as uh, as less functional identities so for me i early in my life i i experienced a lot of suffering i learned very early to this disconnect from my own source and move into different personas that were more accepted by those around me later on i started to rebel against those personas but that was just again within the same paradigm i was just rebelling again in a way that was leading me further away from my source connection so when i entered the spiritual path and i started to have these glimpses of a sense of self that was beyond my personal suffering it was a tremendous sense of freedom it was a such a relief that i could experience a peace within myself a spaciousness within myself that was there no matter what thoughts and feelings and stories moved in in my consciousness so i i became a very uh, ambitious practitioner i meditated a lot i was in love with this uh, spaciousness of uranos that i could access in my meditation practice but nevertheless there was this sense of two yeah that when i closed my eyes and i was in practice i could feel this universal love this spaciousness when i opened my eyes and i started to interact and and, and relate then these old patterns started to to take over and so it was a sense of oh i have this spiritual experience and then i i lost it i had it i lost it i had it i had to 
find it again. So it was this kind of hamster wheel of seeking. And it was not until 9-11 when the terrorist attack happened on Manhattan. I was in Norway at the time. And it was such a shock in the momentum in, in the whole, you know, in, in the whole Western world at that time. There was a few days there where the veils were very thin and people were very awake until, of course, that energy started to turn into revenge and all of these things. In my little personal soap opera, this event shocked me into presence in a way that I hadn't experienced before. But it was not a presence that was this kind of escape from the mass. It was a presence that brought me fully in to myself and facing all the parts that I pretended was not there, all the parts that I thought I could escape by just meditating and just by choosing Uranus. And I saw that I, who had given my life to spiritual practice, that I was not part of the solution in this world. It was as if I was forced to look myself in the mirror and I could not escape myself any longer. Where I had to see all the parts, the underworld parts that were raging and acting out in my relationships and that were running around without parental supervision while I identified with this more spiritual persona. And in this brutal honesty, it, I was thrown into a pain and an embarrassment where I saw that, oh, how can I expect it to be peace in the world when I am living in war within myself and it, within my relationships? And I realized that I had been using my spiritual path to escape, to, to ascend. But what I really longed for was really to be more here. Not to get away from here, but to be more here. To live, to feel alive, to be here in my life. I wanted not only to experience a universal, abstract love, I wanted to embody this love that I accessed in my meditation. And I remember this pain and this in, these insights, it led to a commitment. I really looked very thoroughly on my life and asked myself, is there anything else that matters truly? And I looked at every little corner of my life and I could not find anything more important than to find a way to embody that big love that I knew in my heart. And I didn't really know how to do that. My imprints of love was um, 
drama, conflict. I grew up in a home that went through a very volatile divorce over many, many years. I um, had replicated that in, in many relationships. So it was not that I had figured out how to do it. But in that moment, I did commit. I, it was as if I, I married that longing. I, I stepped two feet in to this dedication. That this is what my life is about. And it is so important to me that I want to marry it for life. Marry this path. Because I also know that it needs the container of marriage to hold all the obstacles that I will meet on this way. So that I just don't kind of change my mind when the first dragon shows up on my path. And I put the ring on my finger. I shaved my, my hair off. And I was ready. And the beauty was that the moment I married this, I committed to this, there was a deep sense of fulfillment. There was a deep sense of, ah, finally, I am at the right place at the right time. Finally, I live what I am here to live. And I knew that even if I was to speak spend the rest of my life failing doing this, it will intrinsically be successful, no matter what the outcome. Because I had fallen into the path, the river of my own dharma, my, the, the, my own evolutionary stream. And I prayed and I prayed Show me how. Show me how. I don't know how. And then something else started to happen that I had not anticipated. You know, sometimes when we make, when we are faced with a, with a big commitment, a big decision, a big kind of evolutionary step, we tend to sit on the fence a little bit thinking that we have to figure out how to do it before we jump off the fence. Because what if it doesn't work? What if it is the wrong choice? And what I discovered was that when I jumped off the fence and I stepped fully in, claiming this for myself, it was a big step for me because I was, you know, I was so broken. I had so many traumas. I was, you know, not a, the kind of poster of a, a spiritual, perfect spiritual person. <laughs> Who am I to be the embodiment of the great love? But there was something in me that, that in that moment stop taking for granted what the glimpses that I had been given to really, really acknowledge the miracle of having being kissed by presence, by something beyond my own personal drama. 
I stopped taking it for granted. I started to honor it. I started to center it in my life and guard it no matter what. Even if the whole universe would turn their back at me and laugh at me, I knew that I was in the right place. I knew what I was here to guard. And when I jumped off the fence, the path appears. You know, this is something we hear here as a poetic term or a metaphor, perhaps. But in my life, my experience was when I jumped off the fence, the energy of my commitment not only created a thousand doors, it also opened them. Doors that did not exist before when I was sitting on the fence waiting to figure out what door and where's the doors. They don't exist. They come into being with the commitment, with the two feet in. So this is what happened in my life. And these doors have kept them opening every single day. And this has been my path ever since. And this longing and this commitment led me to a whole new set of practices. I realized that I needed practices that could weave in whatever glimpse of presence and spaciousness I had in my practice into the matter of my body, into the corners of the underworld of my monsters. I needed practices that were coming from a holistic sense of the divine. And this is what led me to the goddess circles where I started to practice with other women who also shared this longing and for me to meet the goddess in her myriad of forms is like being in the hall of mirrors where I look in one mirror and I see a goddess like Inanna full of erotic lust full of yearning and longing a goddess with the courage to step off her celestial throne to go down into the underworld to retrieve her dark sister in another mirror I would see Aphrodite just luscious erotic beauty and I would see in another mirror Medusa raging such a deep and unapologetic voice of truth or Kali the one dancing in the ashes of all the constructs of identity that holds me back and each time I face a goddess I'm invited to retrieve parts of myself that had no space in the spirituality of uprooted disembodied Uranus 
It is retrieving of my own wholeness and in doing so, retrieving the wholeness of the world. It is to weave the beauty and the spaciousness of Uranus back into Gaia, back into union, so that I can drink from the peace and the love that pours out of this kind of lovemaking. And it is a lifelong practice. It has no end. It's no finished line that some of us will reach and then be above and beyond everybody else. The deeper I go into this practice, the softer the sense of self, the less rigid the identities are. The more parts are invited back into presence into wholeness the more I realize that the divisions between us are not so solid as they seem that we are all here in the same soup and that your awakening is my awakening that just like the the monsters and their activities can be passed on from generation to generation as some kind of collective wheel of suffering that we all participate in and keep keep turning. Each time we pause and we are willing to instead face ourselves, to face the unwanted monsters, to discover that they are not intrinsically monstrous, that there may be hurt or anger there in the basement that just wants to be seen and included. Each time one of us do that, we are breaking the trance for everyone. Yeah, we are opening pathways, possibilities for the future generations that will be born in to a world where there is more choice than to just repeat the patterns of suffering. So, this is uh, what we are doing here on Corfu in our summer ashram. This is what my life is about and this is what I will speak to you about here in this podcast, which I feel very excited about. So to complete here today, I would like to read to you a poem. This is a a poem by Andrea Gibson. Imagine when a human dies, the soul misses the body, actually grieves the loss of its hands and all they could hold, misses the throat, closing shy, reading out loud on the first day of school. Imagine the soul misses the stubbed toe, the loose tooth, the funny bone. The soul still asks, why does the funny bone do that? It's just weird. Imagine the soul misses the thirsty garden cheeks watered by grief. Misses how the body could sleep through a dream. What else can sleep through a dream? What else can laugh? What else can wrinkle? The smiles autograph. 
Imagine the soul misses each fallen eyelash waiting to be a wish, misses the wrist screaming away the blade. The soul misses the lisp, the stutter, the limp. The soul misses the holy bruise, blue from that army of blood rushing to the wound's side. When a human dies, the soul searches the universe for something blushing, something shaking in the cold, something that scars, sweeps the universe for patience worn thin, the last nerve fighting for its life, the voice box aching to be heard. The soul misses the way the body would hold another body and not be two bodies but one pleading God doubled in grace. The soul misses how the mind told the body, you have fallen from grace. And the body said, erase every scripture that doesn't have a pulse. There isn't a single page in the Bible that can wince, that can clumsy, that can freckle, that can hunger. Imagine the soul misses hunger, emptiness, rage. The fist that was never taught to curl, curled. The teeth that were never taught to clench, clenched. The body that was never thought to make love, made love like a hungry ghost digging its way out of the grave. The soul misses the unforever of old age, the skin that no longer fits. The soul misses every single day the body was sick. The now it forced, the here it built from the fever. Fever is how the body prays, how it burns and begs for another average day. The soul misses the legs creaking up the stairs, misses the fear that climbed up the vocal cords to curse the wheelchair. The soul misses what the body could not let go. What else could hold on so tightly to everything? What else could hear the chain of a swing set and fall to its knees? What else could touch a screen door and taste lemonade? What else could come back from a war and not come back but still try to live? Still try to lullaby? When a human dies... The soul moves through the universe trying to describe how, how a body trembles when it's lost, softens when it's safe, how a wound would heal given nothing but time. Do you understand? Nothing in space can imagine it. No comet, no nebula, no ray of light can fathom the landscape of awe, the heat of shame the fingertips pulling the first gray hair and throwing it away. I can't imagine it, the stars say. Tell us again about goosebumps. Tell us again about pain. Thank you for listening to Living Goddess. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend and follow, rate, and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in.